In 2008, there's more to the assessment and management of osteoporosis than T-scores and DEXA scans. Let's learn about FRACs. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman, and with me today is Dr. Sanford Bain from the Colorado Center for Bone Research at the University of Colorado Health Sciences Center in Denver, Colorado. He is also co-author of The Clinician's Guide to the Prevention and Treatment of Osteoporosis, a new publication from the National Osteoporosis Foundation. Dr. Bain, thank you so much for being with us. Well, it's my pleasure, Lee. I know that many of us are familiar with the basics of assessment and treatment of osteoporosis, but perhaps we should take a step back and and look at the scope of this process. What is the impact of osteoporosis in the United States? Well, I think that if we look at the published literature, looking at the incidence rates, mortality rates, long-term care facility hospitalizations, we see a very profound occurrence of cost to the society, to our society, as well as looking at the future, a more robust review showing that this will be just increasing dramatically in the years ahead. And I would just point our listeners to a very excellent review of this by Burge in the Journal of Bone and Mineral Research in 2007. And he points out in regard to the direct costs now being over $17 billion, with over 2 million fractures occurring due to osteoporosis each year. And by 2025, when the U.S. population of 50 and over is predicted to increase by 60%, we're going to see 121 million people in this age bracket. The actual number of osteoporotic fractures will increase to 3 million per year, with a cost to our society of $25 billion. So it has a tremendous impact to our society. And then individually, the direct health care costs, for example, a hip fracture today is close to $30,000. And this will also increase dramatically. Just to put things in perspective a little bit, non-vertebral fractures account for over 70% of all fractures, so vertebral fractures are about 27 to 30% in males and females. And of the 72% that are non-vertebral fractures, the cost of osteoporosis fractures in general are obviously hip fractures, and that is actually the vast majority of costs, so uh, of cost of osteoporosis treatment today. So it's really key that we appreciate that the prevalence and incidence of fractures will increase with time unless we intervene prospectively in our diagnostic evaluation and treatment. And this is not a cost that is relegated only to women. Is that true? Correct. Lee, you're absolutely correct in that one out of two women will develop osteoporotic fractures during their lifetime, and one out of five men will develop osteoporotic fractures. Or thinking of it in a different way, about... 30 to 40% of women after the age of 50 will have a fracture at the hip, spine, or forearm. So we're looking at very significant rates of fracture in women and men and other ethnicities, although other ethnicities have decreased fracture rates as compared to Caucasians in our country. Once a diagnosis of osteoporosis is made, in other ethnicities that may have uh, decreased fracture rates, 
they still have the same risk of fracture. So once you are osteoporotic or have significant clinical risk factors with osteoporosis, your fracture risk is just as pronounced. And the patients that we should be looking for this in, certainly postmenopausal women who lose the protective effect of estrogen, but why don't we review some of the other common risk factors for this process? Well, you're absolutely correct. Again, there are many other risk factors. We have to appreciate that there are conditions or diseases, as we say, that may contribute or cause osteoporosis in addition to hypoestrogenemia or hypogonadism in men and women, either as part of the postmenopausal state or a premature surgical hysterectomy, you know, things of that nature. But there's additional issues that influence who will develop osteoporosis as well. For example, if a person has low intake of calcium throughout their entire lifetime uh, or they have diseases or conditions, medications like glucocorticoids that influence their peak bone mass, even though they may not have active disease at that moment that you're seeing the patient in your clinic, this will influence peak bone development, and they're starting at a different point in time as compared to their genetic potential. So low calcium intake, uh, alcohol of three or more drinks a day, Vitamin D insufficiency and deficiency are commonplace in our society, whether we observe or review this in adults as well as children, high salt intake, immobilization for any cause, excessive vitamin intake, meaning many people are into mega vitamin intake, and especially this is characteristic of excessive vitamin A, which has an adverse influence on bone tissue. These are some of the causes or contributions other than secondary etiologies. And secondary etiologies mean all of the diseases or clinical states that can cause or influence bone development in children and adolescents as well as decrease bone uh, as it pertains to adulthood, meaning we see a progressive decline independent of postmenopausal or age-related bone loss. If you've just joined us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman, and with me is Dr. Sanford Bame from the Colorado Center for Bone Research at the University of Colorado Health Sciences Center in Denver, Colorado. We're discussing an update on the approach to and management of osteoporosis. Dr. Bame, in terms of assessing these patients who are at risk, should we be getting vitamin D levels now on most of our patients? Well, as mentioned earlier in our conversation, vitamin D insufficiency is ubiquitous in our society. It's very commonplace. Matter of fact, a number of articles have been published showing that significant numbers of adults have vitamin D insufficiency, in some cases 50%. In the published trials, meaning the published pharmaceutical-based trials looking at treatment, of osteoporosis, postmenopausal and age-related osteoporosis. In some of these trials, we see reviews showing the same, 50% of individuals having vitamin D insufficiency. So this is commonplace, and as part of any osteoporosis evaluation, vitamin D evaluation should be part of the review process. And this is also part of the clinician's guide that you would find on nof.org that states specifically the types of diagnostic tests that should be considered prior to placing individuals 
with supposed osteoporosis on treatment because they may not have just postmenopausal or age-related osteoporosis. They can have vitamin D deficiency, osteomalacia, a variety of other conditions that require more specific treatment than the characteristic pharmacologic treatment for postmenopausal and age-related osteoporosis. So every patient should have a review, diagnostic, as well as physical diagnosis as it pertains to a history, physical examination, and a laboratory review as outlined in the clinician's guide to exclude many of these secondary etiologies prior to institution of the characteristic medications that we have available to us as it pertains to FDA-approved drug therapy. And tell us a little more about the clinician's guide and specifically this FRAX model, F-R-A-X. How did that come about? Why do we need it? How do we use it? Well, FRAX is separate than the NOF guide. So we're talking about the NOF, National Osteoporosis Foundation's Clinician's Guide to Prevention and Treatment of Osteoporosis. That was a collaboration with a number of societies that produced this specific guide to assist clinicians in the evaluation and treatment of osteoporosis. In the guide, we see there is a section on FRAX. Now, FRAX is a WHO, World Health Organization, objective that has been developed by John Canis and co-workers to determine a different model other than relative risk. So in the past, we had what we call T-score thresholds for the diagnosis of osteoporosis and osteopenia and normal bone mass. These are WHO diagnostic criteria for those diagnoses. However, the problem is, and has been observed throughout the last 10 years, are that people who have osteopenia or low bone mass also have significant increased fracture risk depending upon their associated clinical risk factors. And if we look at the total number of osteoporotic fractures, that occur in our population, there are greater numbers of those in the osteopenic category than in the osteoporotic category, even though their fracture rates or or incidence rates are much higher in the osteoporotic range of bone density. So the total number of fractures are occurring in greater numbers of the osteopenic population because there's so many greater numbers of people in that group. So there are maybe 33 million individuals with osteopenia and 12 million individuals, men and women, with osteoporosis. There are just so many greater numbers in there. And so with bone densitometry alone and using the WHO criteria, we're not able to differentiate on the basis of sensitivity and positive predictive value who's going to fracture as well as using the FRAX model. The FRAX model doesn't use relative risk, but uses absolute risk or quantitation of risk. So this is a totally different model. So when we talk about FRAX, we're actually looking at John Canis's and the WHO, the World Health Organization's, work in this area. And if we look at the WHO model, we see that they used 60,000 patients over 12 
prospectively studied epidemiologic trials in a huge mega-analysis. And this model validate, was then validated in an additional uh, 100 and some thousand, 160,000 patients in additional trials, their clinical criteria. So their clinical risk factors were basically selected on the basis of the likelihood that the risk identified would be amenable to pharmacologic manipulation and the ease with which those risk factors could be used by anyone in clinical practice. So that's how they identified those risk factors in their initial model of over 60,000 patients, 12 studies, and then validated that in 1.5 million patient year studies as well, meaning other epidemiologic trials. Well, I want to thank Dr. Sanford Bame from the Colorado Center for Bone Research at the University of Colorado Health Sciences Center in Denver. This has been the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Thank you very much for listening.